calling all AEC professionals. Get ready for unparalleled professional insights with detailed and original podcasts by RCAT. This is the podcast that brings you the untold stories and lessons learned behind the design and delivery of a building project. Hey, it's Sharice Lakeside, aka the CSI Kraken, and your host. Join me as we dive deep into the tales of conflict, triumph, and sheer ingenuity. Yeah, so when Serena was named for the, it was going to be named for the building, you know, we really were able to work with teams at Nike Branding and how to really infuse her influence and identity in the very public spaces. Detailed features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who spill the beans on the most complex, interesting, and downright odd building conditions they've encountered. Another challenge of the of the shuttle is actually and putting it in launch position is how you brace that seismically. It's really supported by only two pins at the base of the booster rockets. And there's a large base isolator that's underneath the shuttle that kind of prevents it from moving too much in an earthquake. The, you know, when you have 600 people or 300 people in a room, acoustically, you really need a high floor to floor so that you can have the right acoustic environment for people to be able to talk and that, that speech intelligibility is really good. Every episode unveils lessons learned and connects you to the products you need to navigate similar challenges. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Detail today and be prepared for the unexpected on your next project. Every building has a story, and we are here to tell it. This episode of Build Smart Podcast is supported by Twin Motion, the simple real-time rendering solution to create high-quality imagery, client presentations, and interactive experiences that help communicate your design ideas fast. Well, we heard about it. Yeah, we heard about things like we want to be able to make payroll, but we have to borrow money to make payroll. And, you know, when you're an employee, you're kind of like, really, is that is that normal? And you realize that's probably not bonuses. I think Uh, that was always a challenge. Do you pay bonuses? Where do you get the money to pay bonuses? So and I remember when Kajima, you know, when Kajima became or invested in HOK and that at that time, there were some questions about, you know, why were we doing that? But, you know, when you're more in the middle of the pack, you're not like up at, at Patrick's level. To me, they were probably indications of doesn't sound like something we might want to be doing, even though it might have made sense at the time. But um, yeah, so it, it was a cause for some concern. I think we always had confidence that whatever the financial challenges were, they would be solved. But I think until I read the book, I didn't really understand quite the magnitude of how to solve them or what it took. took, took. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I'm joined by Patrick McLaney, FAIA, and former CEO of the international architecture firm HOK. This is Build Smart. Patrick shares stories from his remarkable 50-year career at HOK, rising from junior designer to CEO of the company. With themes of leadership, finance, people, culture, and so much more, you'll find that there's a lesson in every episode. Welcome back to Build Smart. 
Under Patrick's leadership, HOK is in the process of turning around the business of the firm. In our last episode, Patrick discussed the effort of reclaiming the company culture that HOK once had. If you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to all the episodes in order to hear Patrick's full story and insights into how to design a world-class architecture firm. In today's episode, HOK is now in a position to buy back their freedom. A couple of podcasts ago, I think it was episode nine, we talked about the triple crisis that struck HOK all at the same year. That's what caused all of this change to happen. There was the demand from the bank with the line of credit. There was your uh, investors saying that they needed to, to see some more return on their investment. And there was HOK Sport demanding some, some issues that you had to deal with. First, remember that HOK's bank had threatened to withdraw that line of credit, right? So instead of paying it down, how did you do that and how long did it take? Yeah, the bank was the most immediate concern because the bank, our line of credit was maxed out. And uh, as I had said in the earlier podcast, I met the bank representative only once, a young man in St. Louis at a branch of the Bank of America who chewed me up one side and down the other was not interested in any strategy or plan I might have, just wanted to get a piece of me. And I told the banker at the meeting, I said, my answer is this, we're going to start paying this loan off as soon as we're able, and we will make regular payments until every last penny is paid down. I don't think that he actually believed me, but that is in fact exactly what we did. Prattle and I left, and I, I said, I never want to see that banker again. I just want to start making payments as soon as our cash flow improves. So within a few months of becoming CEO and beginning to work at getting the office to, to perform better, our collections improved. And that was because we had these regular XCOM jobs to call offices and say, have you collected the money from such and so client? And collections improved first. And then profitability gradually increased. And as they did, our cash flow got better. And I would say within three months or maybe four months, we, we made our first payment. Pratzel called me one day. He was in St. Louis. I was in San Francisco. Patrick, I think we got enough money here. We can make the first payment back to the bank. We had been making interest payments, but no capital payments, nothing to draw down the loan. So we made our first payment. And every month, Thereafter, or every couple of months, we made another payment. It was irregular. It depended on how well we did financially, what our cash flow was. So we began to draw the line of credit down simply by paying it off. It's nothing different, really, except there's a few more zeros at the end, of having being trapped by large credit card debt and having to finally pay that down in order to get yourself out of basically debt jail. I would also report this to the board. It was a shared journey that the board needed to know how we were doing. And so Pratzel or I would report to the board that we paid another X amount off on the bank line. And uh, that always got a little cheer from the board to see that we were actually making progress toward one of our goals. And um, I'd said earlier that when you have crises, you can ask for more time, which we did. So we got some time. And also, if you have multiple crises, you don't have to deal with them all at the same time. Usually you have time to deal with one and then the other. 
So we we took the focus was was the bank. And as we made the began to make steady payments to the bank and the line got lower and lower, the young banker that had been so abusive called Pratzel and said, can we have lunch? Uh, <laughs> you're doing really well. And I just wanted to thank you and maybe see what other needs you might have at HOK. And uh, I told Pratzel, you can have lunch with him, but I'm not coming. And uh, a little later, he called and said, I noticed you continue to make progress. I'm prepared to offer you an extended line of credit, that is to increase your line. And I said, Pratzel, tell him back that uh, there's no need to have a nice lunch this time and that we're not interested in a big line, a bigger line. We're interested in paying off our line. And finally, after about 36 months, we made our last payment. And the banker called Pratzel again and said, I'd like to invite you and your CEO, Patrick, to a nice lunch with myself and the bank vice president here to see what else we can do to offer services. And I told Bob, Bob, why don't you tell that young banker, no, thank you. We're not interested in that. And I also instructed Bob, go find a new bank. So Bob began a procedure, a process to uh, solicit for a new bank to provide banking services. And we ended up with a very fine relationship with Wells Fargo Bank. And the Wells Fargo representative became a real friend of ours. He was a, a man about my age who had been in banking for years and had recently been transferred to the middle of the country to provide banking service for larger companies. And in fact, uh, Wells Fargo is headquartered in San Francisco. And I remember one really nice day that our banker from the St. Louis area came to San Francisco to meet his superiors and invited me to go meet their CEO, which I did. And uh, they have a nice building with a nice lobby filled with with the Wells Fargo stagecoach and, and other artifacts. And the CEO and I hit it off talking about, basically, he wanted to know my views, my views about the state of the economies around the world. And because HOK was working around the world and had experience in many countries, I found I was actually able to give him some assistance and provide some opinion or some color about various countries. And he was so grateful that we ended up developing a relationship with the bank where they became our client. We were their client for financial services, and they became our client for architecture services. We designed some branch headquarters for them in a number of states. So the relationship blossomed. It was a beautiful thing to see. And there's one other thing that happened. After we paid off our line with the Bank of America and opened the new line with Wells Fargo, I asked Bob to get the bank's advice on where we could make bank deposits into a strategic account the most useful. That is, what what kind of very safe, secure, liquid investments could we make? And they told us, and uh, we kept up with the regular payments that we'd been making the Bank of America, except this time we were making payments to Wells Fargo Bank into a strategic cash reserve that we would put to very good use later for any number of things. And the interesting thing is for every dollar that we paid down our debt with Bank of America, the stock value improved because our, our liabilities were down. And after we changed to Wells Fargo and began to make regular deposits, 
our stock value also went up because we were increasing our assets. Now we have a nice line of credit with the Wells Fargo Bank, but I will say that we used it almost not at all as we built up our own strategic cash reserves. We still had the line of credit for emergencies, but we began, began to build our own line of credit for our own variations in cash flow. And as it got big enough for strategic purposes, buying firms and buying the rest of our freedom. You also talked about Kojima and the investor. He, you know, they own 15% of HOK uh, and they were making financial demands back in that episode. And you managed to address that threat as well. How did you do that? Uh, we continued to meet with Kojima because they were our partners as an investor. And um, within the few months after I began uh, as CEO, our profitability went up and the stock value of HOK stock went up. And uh, they began to be interested in that growth and their idea of asking for a dividend instead of uh, relying on stock growth began to fade. And after one year, when we uh, had it at the end of every year, as always, we had an audit of our books and the audited financial statement came out and verified, in fact, the HOK stock growth. Then they became satisfied and they said, well, this is a good thing because you're rewarding us as shareholders, not just yourselves as employees and, and with bonuses. So we're content to treat this as an investment. But because the economy in Japan is poor, uh, we as a company could use the cash. So when the stock grows, when the HOK stock value grows to the point of our original investment, then let's talk about converting our, our holding in HOK into cash. That is paying us off. That's because in, in Japan, in the decade of the 90s, they call it the lost decade, the Japanese economy was in terrible shape. And uh, most companies there were paralyzed. And Kojima uh, survived that episode, but struggled to find enough cash to operate itself. And so we were one investment that they had made that they were interested in converting back to cash. So as the stock continued to go up after, after five years, that's two years after the bank was paid off, our stock value had grown to the point that it was the equivalent of what Kojima had paid for the, the HOK stock in the first case. So Bob Pratzel, our CFO, and I met with them, this time not in New York City in Manhattan, but in a very nice office in Santa Monica, California, with a beautiful view out to the Pacific Ocean. There were two of them, two of us, and uh, Mr. Koshijima, who became a very good friend of mine, uh, and I were the ones negotiating, and he had his CFO and I had Pratzel to give advice. And the whole conversation with him about what price to settle on took maybe 20 minutes, and it was all very amicable. We, we talked about a number, and I said, here's the number, here's the number that the stock has grown to, but we will give you a bit more than that because you need some return on your investment. And he said, well, I, I need to have a whole number that starts a little bit higher than that. And basically, without talking about the details of it, once I said, well, okay, how about this whole number? He looked at me and smiled and put out his hand. So I reached across the table and shook his. We all smiled and shook hands. Because we had the money now in the bank, Mark, 
we had the money in our Wells Fargo strategic reserve account. I said, we'll arrange to make the final payment to you for your shares of HOK stock within 30 days. And we had the money to do it. What a wonderful thing that is to have money. It's very liberating. And so we parted as friends and we both agreed that we were good friends. We had learned from each other during their time as an investor in HOK. We had done some good work together. We've done some good work with them since. And I like to think of them as good friends still. And I still have good friends in Kojima personally. And uh, we no longer had an outside investor. We were once again, totally owned by active employees as it was established by the founders. HOK is beginning to buy back their freedom after all these years. However, the final crisis for Patrick to resolve came from within, HOK Sport. If you recall from episode five, Seeds of Trouble, and episode nine, Triple Crises, HOK Sport entered the firm through a sort of acquisition of a small group of people that wanted to leave HNTB to join a firm that was more design-oriented. As part of the agreement to join HOK, the HOK Sport team was to receive half of the revenue from the sport's architecture work for their office's bonus pool. The crisis arose when the effort to prop up poorly performing HOK offices absorbed HOK Sport's bonus pool. I became very concerned that this group, good friends, many of them, could simply decide, hey, you know, we don't really need HOK. Let's just all quit and go across the street somewhere in Kansas City and start a new firm. We could probably bring all of our clients along because the client relationship is with us, not with HOK. And uh, HOK will be saddled with a lease in an old building to pay for and the remnants of whatever uh, expenses that office has. And they'll have to buy out our stock because many of them, many of those sport leaders were HOK shareholders. That was to me dangerous. It was financially dangerous, but really Mark, at the end of it all, it was, I didn't want people inside the firm that weren't for the whole firm. Like we were working so hard to, to achieve with other uh, offices and leaders. I wanted people that loved the firm and put HOK first. And by the very nature of the sport arrangement where they got first dibs on all sport work, initially in the US and then finally around the world, they were pretty much operating like I would say a, a sports franchise operates. The St. Louis Cardinals baseball franchise is connected to the National League of American Baseball, but the, the franchise can do many things on its own without asking or caring what the rest of the league does. And I think they thought of themselves that way. It's a natural thing. We wanted a firm where everybody shared uh, and were collaborative and helped each other to succeed, not a, a firm of franchises. Yeah, not only did you want that, that's what you've been working all these years toward. Yes. That third level of the pyramid being true collaboration, the arrangement that you had with HOK Sport was contrary to that in structure. And so it became an issue. It was analogous to the bonus pool that we talked about the last episode, where the bonuses were rewarding profitability instead of profitability and collaboration and client service and great design. So I came to believe 
that the only way to really resolve this was to sell the sport practice back to the sport leadership and uh, get them in a peaceful way out of the firm instead of in a harmful way. And I had to persuade my colleagues on the executive committee that this was the right prudent thing to do. And I was able to do it mostly by telling them what would happen possibly if we didn't do it. That if they all left, resigned in mass, went across the street in Kansas City and opened a new office, we'd be stuck with winding down the old office and paying off their stock, which were big expenses. So at that time, HOK Sport was led by a group of 12 leaders. They had appointed one of their group as their, they didn't call him a CEO, they called him a chairman or something. His name was Rick Martin. And I, I knew and liked Rick. Rick and I had gotten along personally very well. And so, what I did not want to do, and this is a real lesson, I think, uh, my first impulse, and in fact, at the XCOM, we all discussed, well, maybe the XCOM should go to Kansas City and sit down with the 12 sport leaders. And I think there were five or six on the XCOM in those days. So that would have been a room full of people. I said, we'll never achieve a solution or consensus about how to do this with uh, too many cooks in the soup. So instead, I proposed, why don't I go one-on-one with Rick Martin and meet Rick on neutral territory and talk about how we might separate the two firms. And then Rick and I would each have the job of conveying back the, the story to our colleagues and, and gaining a consensus. So that's what we did, we agreed. And I called Rick, I said, Rick, I, I have something important to talk to you about. Okay, what's it about? I said, I'm not gonna tell you on the phone I want to meet you, neutral territory. And the neutral territory we selected was the Denver Airport United Red Carpet Club, because it was easy for both of us to get to Denver. So I flew to Denver, he flew to Denver. We met in the Red Carpet Club, got ourselves a little conference room there. And he said, okay, I've come all this way, what's it about? And I basically said, Rick, this is not working. We've got this firm, we're headed in the direction that we want to go as a firm with the, the collaborative efforts, but you don't fit in it. The way you choose to work and the way you're, you're organized, it's the antithesis of that. And you're very successful. We give you great credit for that, but I think it would be better for you and for, for HOK if we found a good way for you and HOK to separate ways. He thought about it for a minute, he said, I agree. So how do you want to proceed? This episode of Build Smart Podcast is supported by Twin Motion. What if you could visualize your building in a couple of clicks, remove months from the design process, or create a bridge between stakeholders to solve problems before they even come up? Our friends at Twin Motion offer simple, real-time visualization for architects. Their technology lets you view and edit your scene on the go in the same pixel-perfect quality as the final rendering. Twinmotion seamlessly integrates with other tools like SketchUp and Revit, transforming your BIM or CAD models into high-quality images, panoramas, standard or 360-degree VR videos, or presentations. What's more, you will have access to the world's largest library of 3D assets to populate your scene. Sound complicated? 
Well, what if I told you that Twinmotion enables anyone to present the biggest ideas in the easiest way possible, regardless of previous CG experience? To download your exclusive free trial, head over to twinmotion.link slash buildsmart. That's twinmotion.link slash buildsmart to download your free trial of Twinmotion today. He and I met two or three times in that same red carpet club and uh, came up with, and I think, again, there's a great lesson in this. As two leaders, we came up with a very simple uh, arrangement for dividing up the, the firm. Because if we had done it by committee with all the XCOM meeting with the sports group, I don't think we would ever have agreed. And if we had let the lawyers in at the beginning, the agreement would not have been one page, I'm sure of that. So the page was basically a bullet outline that I prepared and that eventually Rick signed. And it said things like, we have both agreed to split the firm. The sport leaders agree to buy HOK Sport or HOK Kansas City from HOK at the book value of HOK Sport. We had to do a little bit of auditing work to assess, assess the value, but it was not a difficult thing. It's a, it's a, an accounting calculation. Turns out that the sport leader's stock shareholding was about equivalent to the value of HOK Sport. So it was almost cashless. I think they ended up paying us a million dollars or close to a million dollars. And uh, that was a pretty easy thing to conclude. The difficulty we had was with who gets credit for the work that was done by HOK Sport. And what is their new name going to be? And Rick said, well, we agree to the valuation. We agree to selling our stock back, but we want to keep the name HOK Sport. Well, no, Rick, you can't have that. That's HOK's brand. You're going to have to create your own. That probably took the longest to, to reach agreement on something like that because, well, that name HOK Sport was legendary in the sports architecture business. As far as credit was concerned, we gave them full credit for all the work that they had done since joining HOK, as we should have, because it was the right thing, because they were responsible. In the few cases where an HOK office was able to collaborate with a sport office, in St. Louis for the new Cardinals baseball stadium, in Washington, D.C. for the new uh, baseball stadium there, and a few others, HOK would take the credit for only the piece that we did. So. The lesson there was, don't overreach. If, if you didn't really design something, it's okay to let that go. So we reached agreement on that. We also said, for the next five years, we're not going to poach each other's people, and we're not going to compete with each other. Uh, HOK would refrain from pursuing sports design work, and HOK Sport would refrain from pursuing design work of non-sport things like hotels next to stadiums or shopping galleries next to stadiums, entertainment centers next to stadiums, all of which we had designed and continued to. So we got all those things separated out. Rick and I shook hands on it, I think after our third meeting. He took it back to his sport leaders. Each time we met, I took it back to my XCOM and we reached an agreement based on that one page. And once we had agreed both his group and, and the H and the XCOM agreed. Then we brought in the lawyers. And of course, 
it regressed immediately. <laughs> and Rick and I both had to stay engaged to keep the lawyers focused on uh, keeping the agreement in the in the letter and the spirit of our agreement. Otherwise, uh, the whole thing could have fall, fallen apart again. This occurred about one year after we were able to buy out Kojima. So let's say in the sixth year since I became CEO, it took that long to get to the third piece. The day that we sold sport back to uh, the sport leaders was a memorable day for me, for the XCOM and for the board. By then we had all gotten used to the idea that we're going to go on ahead by ourselves because this is our firm and we didn't want to encumber it with people that did not want to be there. So that represented the last of the big three crises that we had, you and I had talked about earlier. It was a very liberating feeling, I have to say, to have HOK once again, not only owned by the people in the firm, but by people who wanted to help each other, people who wanted to be in HOK. And um, we also knew that five years hence, we could get back into the sport business. Tune in next time. And we'll talk about that <laughs> because it's an important part of our work. So with each one of these steps, paying off the bank, then buying out Kojima, and then finally separating from sport, our level of confidence as a firm grew. Oh, we can solve problems. Oh, we can make money. Oh, we can, we can make our way forward. We can make this firm the one we want, not the one that other people think that we must have. So we got our freedom back by these three steps. And it took a lot of hard work. And it took a lot of hard work of all of us together, not just me, to give us the means and the resources to do this. So you, you've you bought your freedom. You've, gone, you've solved the three crises. It took you six years to, to complete the finished one. Um, before I ask the last question of our episode here, what was the name that they renamed HOK Sport? <laughs> They didn't have one when we first divided up. And uh, finally, they came up with the name Populous. I think that's a perfectly fine name. I don't quite understand what it's about. And uh, to me, it's not the household name that HOK Sport was. Uh, but they're happy with it. And they continue to this day. We know those people. Uh, we're friends with them. And uh, I wish them well. And we also compete with them. Yeah. HOK Sport. Uh, is a, was a strong brand, and Populous is a is a new brand, and uh, they'll have to do the same work that HOK did in order to earn the brand HOK Sport, and so uh, it'll be interesting to watch as they continue to to grow. Throughout all of this, leadership changed. Also, not long after you bought your freedom, what what were some of the changes, and how did that strengthen HOK? Yes, uh, as time progresses, uh, of course, it's, uh, leaders do change because people grow older and so on. My partner in San Francisco for all of my career uh, up to that time was Bill Valentine. He was my first boss, and he was Gio Obata's successor as HOK president, as the design leader for the firm. Bill uh, retired after 50 years with HOK, just the same as I did five years later. And we, we made the decision, he and I, mostly he, to bring Bill Helmuth up as the design successor. So Bill Helmuth, this nephew of founder George Helmuth, who was hired by Gio, 
in St. Louis and transferred a year and a half later to Washington, D.C. as the design leader there. Bill Helmuth was already in ECOM, but became our new design leader as president of HOK. We also brought in Carl Galeotto to the XCOM. Carl was the person that I had recruited after I met him at the CURT meeting, where we talked about the effort curve that's been called the McLamy curve. And Carl became, he was not only the, the leader of HOK New York and a member of our board of directors, but also the technical leader for the firm. So Carl joined the XCOM and added a huge depth to our capabilities as, as leaders. This newly assembled team would go on to make huge contributions to take HOK to the next level. One example, Carl Galeotto, the now president of HOK, managing principal of the New York and Philadelphia studios, during this period of transformation for HOK, suggested, Shorten the lines and make it tighter. We were wrestling with problems with uh, a number of offices and leadership structures in various offices. And we had, we have to fill this gap here, fill this gap here. Uh, we didn't have the right number of people. And I'm a, I'm a student of history. I mean, I read history voraciously, but we were, we were having this discussion and I was in my room thinking about it. And we came into the morning and, and Patrick asked, anybody have sleep on our thoughts? And I said, yeah, you know, all the problems we're having, you know, it reminds me, I read about infantry tactics. And when your troops are deployed too broadly, you know, you're, you're weak. And there's, a, uh, there's something called shortening your lines. In other words, get everybody closer together. This way they can support each other better. So shorten the lines, give up some ground, shorten the lines and make it tighter. I said, if we shorten our lines and say, okay, we're going to take this office and put it underneath the management of another office, we can have the best leaders managing several offices and still have a large firm, a very large firm, but we're shortening our lines in terms of responsibility. And then a few offices that aren't working, okay, we'll close those offices. But then our lines are shorter, our perimeter is tighter, and we're stronger. And I remember everyone looking at me in the, on the XCOM meeting, and I'm saying, these people must think I'm insane. And I think it was Ricardo said, that's it. That's, you got it. We got to stick to that. And then finally, Susan Williams, Bill Helmuth's management principal partner in Washington, D.C., joined the XCOM. And Susan was a natural because she knew how to keep the firm's operations going. So she teamed up with Tom Robson, our COO, to give added strength there to keeping things on an even keel uh, so that we continue to make money, earn money, collect money, and operate the firm in an efficient way. Uh, you know, Susan's managing principal of the whole Southeast. I mean, we had a, you know, a DC office, an Atlanta office, and a Tampa office with separate management teams on it. And, uh, you know, some of them were kind of like flopping around like a fish on the deck. And uh, you put, we put them under Susan. Jesus, it's like, uh, you know, a Swiss watch now. I mean, I'm basically an operations person and I live and breathe finance. And I'm looking at all the offices around the company now in my role. But to just think that there wasn't even a some of the basic tenants that we have in place now, like financial performance, we call them FPS calls, but they're financial performance uh, summaries that are set up with each office. All of that got instituted uh, because of Patrick. So none of that was happening 
at the time you take it for granted that it's always been in place, but then you realize, no, that's not how it did used to work. So, so he actually focused on how to get those offices that were unhealthy, healthy. So I think Patrick, at the time when you inherited all of this, it was like one hot mess to be a little more colorful with my language. But I think that the practices and the principles that he put in place at the time that we still use to this day really helped us weather this pandemic to bring it more up into a modern light. Back before the pandemic, it actually went to the 45% rule. Now that we're in the pandemic, it's popped back up to the 48% rule. Uh, that said, that same principle is still in effect and is still one of the guiding uh, financial tenants that we uh, practice. I mean, we still go through 10 months of backlog is a good financial metric. We still have calls with all the offices. We still communicate. I did develop another financial tool to track where I put in a um, quarterly forecast which is an actual two-month projection. And then I can look at the payroll. I can see, you know, what they can afford if they're over or under. And we share that now with all the offices on the FPS calls and they like it because they get a feel for where they're headed, right? So you can hide for maybe a month, right, Patrick? We know this. But if you're going to have this trend that goes on multiple months, they realize they're in trouble. They get to see it and they're like, yeah, I know. I have to fix it. You know, we want to get in compliance. I don't think they're resentful. I think they actually, everybody's quite used to seeing it now. We talk about it on the board. Every board call we go through it still. And all the FPS calls we go through it. So it's really become part of the culture. I had basically a new team. And instead of being the youngest person on the XCOM, as it was true when I joined the XCOM, now I was the oldest. And uh, those, those things happen if you stick around long enough. <laughs> That's right. So it was now time for us to go pursue our dreams because we had absolutely earned the right. What a story to, uh, to hear about the crises. All of those crises, just to remind everybody, those crises happened on the same day. Patrick learned about them and the, and the rest of the, the XCOM learned about those crises all the same day. Well, HOK Sport came later. But the, the investor issue with Kojima and and the issue with the bank all on the same day it took six years to fix those issues buy their freedom and now they're finally free so i'm looking forward to the next episode to learn what you can do once you've bought your freedom as we wrap up this episode what are the lessons that we should be taking away today well one is that if you have crises ask for time people will usually give you time if you show good intent and uh, we use our time well. Second lesson is cash is king. Without cash, it's really difficult to get yourself out from under problems. And uh, we did, we earned our cash the hard way, but maybe the best way by earning it every month, putting a sum aside, first to pay down debt and then to build up strategic reserves. And cash is freedom. It's freedom for uh, people as individuals and companies and architectural practices, and so on, because it gives you the flexibility to go your own way, chart your own course. Also, if, if you're, when you're negotiating with somebody, as we did with Kojima and then with Sport, it's always good to negotiate that big picture first. Don't get down into the details. Get the big ideas down first. 
because you can fill in the colors later. If you get the big picture and if you keep it simple, it's much like having a simple strategic plan, the pyramid, having a simple negotiation to uh, something you can put on one sheet of paper, as I did with Rick Martin, uh, and then sticking with that as the details get filled in and the lawyers and the accountants and the auditors come in so that the simplicity of it is not lost. Because life is way too complicated if you let it be. So it takes some grit, again, to work to keep things simple enough. And then finally, if you're going to negotiate with someone, do it someplace that's neutral, someplace that's nice. I think we could have picked a better spot than Red Carpet Club at the airport in Denver, but it was not bad. Um, If people are in a good place when they're negotiating, a good setting, good things can happen. And then finally, uh, find and groom good leaders from within your own firm, and you'll find that you have good leadership succession, people waiting and ready to take on more responsibility as the XCOM begins to shift and, and evolve. To continue the story, come back next week for the next episode of Built Smart. After climbing the steps of Patrick's strategic pyramid, HOK has finally earned the right to dream. Listen in next week to find out how to know when your firm has earned the right to dream and what those dreams can be. It was that little basic, simple pyramid idea that we had to do these things to earn the right to our dreams. And everybody in the board, the executive committee, and around the firm knew about it. They knew this was happening. And it wasn't something that happened on a Tuesday or a Thursday or something. It gradually dawned on us that, oh, we're actually at the top. (laughs) Right. Uh, So the feeling gradually came over us, but I was euphoric and realized that there were some dreams that I had and dreams that others had that we, we shared. So what were they and how did we go about them? Thank you to Twin Motion for their support of this podcast and thank you for listening. To read along and see illustrations and personal photos that accompany this series, get Patrick's book, Designing a World-Class Architecture Firm. You can find the book at gablemedia.com slash buildsmartbook. This podcast is a Gable Media production and is produced by Demetrius Lynch Jr. Gable Media is the home of curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. You can listen in, subscribe, and find more content like this from our network partners at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. How familiar are you with the hidden forces shaping our world? Learn about the spaces you occupy every day with Spaces Podcasts, a journey through the design, construction, and the impact of our evolving environments. Hi, I'm Demetrius Lynch, host of Spaces, and I'm thrilled to take you on a ride through the intersections of environment, politics, culture, and economy. Join me and leading industry professionals as we uncover the stories behind the spaces that shape societies, past, present, and future. Today, there's a certain amount of cynicism and and kind of general malaise. Maybe many practices should come together and think about common goals solving some of the major issues of the day. If I'm not mistaken, am I seeing like a wallpaper that is imitating books in some places? Yeah, I have to say now we are in peace with this. But <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe now by following the link in the show notes 
and let's unravel the secrets of our built world together. Spaces Podcasts. Go beyond the everyday because spaces shape society. Spaces.